0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For August 4th, 2022, it's the Nothing's the Matter with Kansas edition. I am David Plotz. I'm here in Washington, D.C., Emily Bazlon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School joins us from a, a wooden shack somewhere in northern New England. Hello, Emily. Hey. And John is out. I think he's going to be out for a couple of weeks. And that means we have a chance to have a great new guest host making her full hosting debut from The Sum of Us, the book, and The Sum of Us, the podcast. The Gabfest welcomes Heather McGee. Heather, it's great to have you back on the show.
1: Oh, it's so fun. I'm so excited.
0: This week on The Gabfest, Fest, Tuesday's wild and divergent election results. Kansas voters stand up for abortion rights. Missouri voters reject a monster. Arizona and Michigan Republicans put election deniers on their November ballots. Then the horrors of the Alex Jones trial and whether he can be punished enough or even at all for his sins. And then we'll talk to The Atlantic's Annie Lowry about her grueling, disturbing and profound account of her life-threatening pregnancies. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. For Tuesday night in August, the election results were really wild. Kansas voters protected the abortion rights enshrined in the state constitution, according to the Kansas Supreme Court, enshrined in the state constitution, with extraordinary turnout in a midterm primary election and huge support for the vote, even in Trumpy areas. Arizona nominated a bunch of extremists, a Senate candidate named Blake Masters, a Secretary of State candidate, Mark Fincham, who is a true 2020 election denier, deeply troublesome person. Missouri Republicans, on the other hand, rejected the lizard in human form Eric Greitens, who was credibly accused of all kinds of abusive behavior towards women. Uh, but nominated someone who's much more likely to, to hold that Senate seat for the Republicans. Michigan Republicans nominated their most electable candidate for governor and tossed a House member who had voted for Trump's impeachment. So, Emily, let us start with the Kansas vote, which was pretty astonishing. What does it suggest about how the Dobbs era and the horrifying stories that the Dobbs era has already given us will shape up politically?
2: Yeah, I mean, I confess I was very surprised by this vote. I had simply looked at the fact that there were twice as many um registered republicans in Kansas as democrats and assumed that this measure would pass and a couple interesting things the measure did not ban abortion it returned abortion to the legislature um for a possible ban or other restrictions. And Kansas actually allows abortion all the way up until 22 weeks. So the fact that the voters were so overwhelmingly in favor of keeping the status quo was really interesting. And, you know, the side that was fighting against this amendment really emphasized some of the kind of libertarian, small government values of Kansas. And I think that was smart. When you look outside of Kansas for what this means nationally, I mean, one obvious lesson is that if you put this issue directly to the voters and there's nothing off on the ballot, in other words, they're not judging a candidate with all the aspects of being a Republican or a Democrat, you're just looking at abortion. It seems likely that in other states as well, this is going to be a loser for abortion opponents. Yeah. Um, The ACLU did some polling in Mississippi, which suggested that maintaining abortion rights is more popular than certainly I would have expected. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing here is a kind of vulnerability for abortion opponents, this question of whether they um, have gone or about to go too far. But how it translates into races where, you know, also inflation is on the ballot and all the vulnerabilities for the Democrats, I just don't think we know the answer to that yet. I'm curious, Heather, what you think about that?
1: You know, I think that this has always been uh, the Supreme Court case, Dobbs, has always been the result of a 50-year plan to do something that was highly unpopular, right? And we have to remember that. It's really difficult when we have both, um, you know, a huge majority on the Supreme Court and a lot of Republican legislatures across the country at the state level to remember that our democracy um, has a lot more of the things that are antithetical to today's far right being overwhelmingly popular across the country, right? You know, abortion is something that one out of every four women has. The idea of the kinds of hacks that we see in state legislatures uh, deciding whether or not my family, uh, you know, what how my family is going to expand or not is just crazy to many people. Um, you know, Mississippi, that polling, Emily, that you noted, um, you know, you didn't need to see the ACLU poll because you could go back in time and remember when Mississippians overwhelmingly rejected a, a personhood amendment, right, that would say that um, give constitutional personhood rights to, you know, anything growing in a person's body, right? And So I think it's really important for people who are supportive of reproductive freedom to use this Kansas moment to, like, you know, pick themselves back up and say, you know what, they're on the wrong side of history, they're on the wrong side of the people, and we can't be timid about defending this essential human right.
0: But there's a gap between the popular question, is our abortion rights, do people want them and are are they, should they be protected, and the practical... Ability of people to do that. Kansas allowed it. Kansas, because of the structure that what the Kansas Supreme Court had done already to protect abortion rights, uh, there was this possibility of a clear referendum, and it was it was well timed, certainly for for supporters of of reproductive freedom. But are we going to be able to see in other states this kind of popular measure? I, I think you, the point you started with. Heather, about these Republican state legislatures is so important that in so many states we have state legislatures which are have supermax, super not supermax, supermajorities of of Republicans, very conservative Republicans, and Republican governors. And the chances that we're gonna see ballot measures and uh other efforts that that enshrine abortion rights seems to be pretty low in most of these states.
1: I think that's right. Um, I think this is going to be a long, hard slog to get back to some sort of fairness and dignity. And in the meantime, you know, pregnant people are going to die. Um, but this is really where, you know, we, we have so many issues that are on the ballot in various states. We have so many issues that candidates stand up for. And most of them, many Americans feel like it doesn't really matter, right, what politicians say or do. You're kind of all the same. It's not really going to affect my life. This is one of those moments where when it really comes down in your life as a voter, as a member of a family, and you realize that some law that somebody made is fundamentally changing, imperiling your life, making it harder for you to feed the children you currently have, it it is galvanizing, right? We've seen huge upticks of voter registration, particularly among women, in the wake of Dobbs. And so you're right that... The machinery of a, you know, not that representative democracy has always been on the side of patriarchy and always on the side of men using the state to control women's bodies. But I, I'm very wary as a politi- as someone who talks about politics in the public um, to seem like this is like there's no hope. And um, the people that I've talked to who are on the ground helping pregnant people move across state lines um, they haven't lost hope, right? They're like literally threatened uh, with violence and with incarceration, and they haven't lost hope. So I just think it's really important to take this moment of this win. And do we have to fix our democracy? Do state legislatures have to change to be more representative? Um, Absolutely. And I think that's where, frankly, Democrats should be and should have been spending a lot more time focusing.
0: Moving to some of the other results. So as a citizen, I feel a sense of relief that Republicans rejected the most grotesque man in politics, Eric Greitens, in the Missouri Senate race, although it does mean that a a very conservative Republican is likely to win that seat. Um, But still, a number of pretty frightening people won on Tuesday, Heather, including Mark Fincham, a full-on election denier who could be the next secretary of state in Arizona, administer the state's elections, Carrie Lake, who could be the governor of Arizona, what does it mean that there are election deniers and election meddlers up and down Republican tickets in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania?
1: Honestly, it's one of the things I'm most worried about in terms of the short-term dangers and threats to our democracy. Um, you know, I am. I, we've got a bunch of billionaires and a bunch of big liars and a bunch of billionaire-backed big liars. Um, we've got some people who are really, really espousing a pretty terrifying vision of the country um, that makes Trump look like a Sesame Street character, you know. Um, uh, Masters, uh, the Senate nominee uh, who's backed by his uh, best friend, Peter Thiel, um, has a really scary vision of the world. Um, And it's one in which it's not just, oh, I'm just a far-right libertarian. It's like actually... I'm so worried about the, you know, saving my country that I think what we really need is huge government that is taken over by a few smart men who can stop, who can use any means necessary to stop the threat of the radical left. And this is not a House candidate. This is not, you know, a state legislative candidate. This is a U.S. Senate candidate. And um, it's really scary. Like, it's this... it's this. um, combining of an anti-democratic with, you know, not at all afraid of a concentration of wealth and power with a lot of patriarchy and racism and xenophobia. Um, And he's like wrapped up in a very sort of physically appealing, you know, nondescript package. Um, And that's what we've really got to be worried about, um, is that the internet, frankly, has mainstreamed and created communities for ideas that most Americans, you know, at least for now, would think are totally abhorrent, um, but you know, add a few uh, billionaires behind you and you can make it all the way to governing power.
0: Emily, what do you make of this defeat of Peter Meyer, a relatively moderate Republican who had voted for Trump's impeachment in Michigan, a extremely Trumpy, very conservative guy named John Gibbs who kind of came out of nowhere to beat Meyer in a Republican primary in Michigan, uh, in part because Democrats spent a bunch of money to help Gibbs beat Meyer in the hopes that running against Gibbs would make it easier to elect a Democrat in that district. Uh, It's also a bet that Democrats made in Pennsylvania where they they ran ads to help uh, Doug Mastriano, another real piece of work, uh, become the Republican governor, gubernatorial candidate there. Should Democrats be meddling in these Republican primaries to help these trumpier candidates, number one, and number two, is it worth us wasting any time blaming them for doing that when of course it's Republican primary voters who are the ones casting the ballot, so Democrats are not really responsible for John Gibbs getting the nomination?
2: I mean, to me, it just seems like such a high risk strategy, and there is something um just odd about coming in behind the candidate that Democrats, you know, would vehemently oppose if they won the primary, which is now, of course, what's going to happen. And I think you also risk confusing voters. It just seems like a kind of I mean, it's obviously you could argue that there's like sophisticated strategy here that Mitch McConnell would totally approve. Like it's gaming the race in the way that gives the Democratic challenger the best chance of winning the actual election. And I think if Democrats run the table on these races, then they're going to be able to say this was a smart strategy. Um, But there's something distasteful about it. And I don't know, maybe I sound naive saying that, but the high risk nature of it, the sort of moral ambiguity of it um, bothers me.
1: Yeah, I don't think we can say in the same breath that election deniers are a threat to our democracy and here's half a million dollars. Democrats keep running on like Republican boogeymen and I understand Republicans keep creating those boogeymen, right? It's not Democrats' fault that the right wing has taken over the Republican Party. Um, but it, it it feels like a huge part of the problem in the Democratic community right now in the Democratic voter base is a lack of enthusiasm for our people. It's not that we don't understand how scary the bad guys are. It's a lack of enthusiasm for Democrats and a lack of um, commitment from Democrats to delivering on what many, you know, Democratic activists left it all on the field for, which was a Democratic trifecta um, in Washington and feeling like there's something about the party spending hard-earned money of people who were, you know, responding to those obnoxious texts and sending it to scary Republicans instead of, you know, working twice as hard to put that money um, into flipping a seat and expanding the majority with, you know, real Democrats who are willing to fight for the Democratic agenda.
0: Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gap Fest and other Slate podcasts and member exclusive episodes on some shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. And you'd also get no ads on our podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash Plus, you can become a member today. We'll talk about whether it is remotely possible, as Heather, I think, thinks it is to be optimistic about America anymore. The judgment phase in the first of three Alex Jones defamation trials is wrapped up And then we're waiting for the jury to make a decision. But it was comical and terrifying. On Wednesday, it took a real turn when lawyers for the Sandy Hook families who had won a defamation judgment against Jones, they won it basically because he refused to defend himself. They didn't he didn't he didn't even show up. They revealed that Jones's lawyers had handed over everything on his phone to them by accident, which allowed them to prove that Jones had wildly perjured himself in denying that he had discussed Sandy Hook or that he even used email. They're seeking $150 million in damages from Jones and his, his affiliated companies, uh, Infowar companies. Uh, there are also these other two trials, I think, which which are going to do the same. So, Emily, start by reminding us what Alex Jones did in this case that is so despicable. I'm a great lover of the First Amendment, but what Alex Jones has done in the name of the First Amendment is truly sickening.
2: Yeah. So these are families who lost their children to the um, Sandy Hook School mass shooting. And Alex Jones um, relentlessly called this a false flag operation and accused the parents of lying. Um, A lot of the allegations at this trial have to do with a television special that Megyn Kelly taped with um, one of the fathers here. And afterward, uh, Jones implied that he had lied about his own son. And one of the things I think that makes Jones's speech um, so problematic and uh, to me very much justifies this defamation suit is the terrible cost of these families where people believed Jones and there was a lot of bullying and harassment and intimidation and, you know, threat. That they have faced for years. It has dogged them. And so they really have borne a cost. Jones, meanwhile, we know is making just tons of money with all the um, supplements and uh, body armor and other stuff that gets sold on his show and advertisements. Um, you know, figures like $50 million a year that he is pulling in. And so then when you look at this $150 million, um, Uh, demand for damages that the families have put forward, what you're talking about is two things. The actual harm that they have suffered, and then also being able to really um, send a message to Jones and really make him actually pay. I mean, if this ends up being a small award, it's not clear how much it's really going to matter to him. He could make the calculation, sure, I'll do this again, because you know, chances are I'll get to keep most of it the next time. He has gone into bankruptcy proceedings, but that's really probably a way of kind of protecting his assets and trying to make sure he doesn't have to pay or pays as little as possible. And then the other thing that's just been remarkable about this trial are the revelations you were talking about, where it seems clear that he did not turn over evidence he had um, that would have helped the families prove their case. And then also he has been going after them and the judge and the jury on his show, you know. Up to date. And so there is also the sense that, you know, everything he touches gets smeared. And you got to wonder whether the jury is going to be taking that into account.
0: Heather, in any decent society, Alex Jones, people like Alex Jones would be anathema. They would be shunned. They would be unable to walk into a room without being hissed at. They would be working at marginal jobs, certainly not have a platform. What is it that has changed in the world? And I have a theory about this that allows someone so without decency to thrive. Why is it possible to monetize this kind of craziness and draw people to you with this kind of craziness in a way that it was much harder to do a generation ago? Not that there weren't crazy and antisocial and lying people, but that they couldn't do what Alex Jones has done.
1: You know, there's a really interesting dad, one of the many dads of these slain babies, um, who the kid's name was Noah, the dad's last name is Posner. Um, and he is a very interesting character to look at in this, trying to figure this out, because he's like, I used to listen to Alex Jones on the radio on my way to work, you know? Like, why, why is everybody acting like this is a fringe figure, like... I have questions. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the government. I'm skeptical of corporate media. Um, you know, he really does play on a widely held skepticism of big institutions, the sense that, you know, people with a lot of power are lying to you. And so there is something that he's very good at, Alex Jones, which is basically saying, Uh, You know, other powerful people are lying to you, and I'm the only one with the guts to question these things. And if you follow me down this rabbit hole, you'll be smarter. You'll be in a community of people who really know what's going on. You will have a sense of purpose in your life. Um, And, you know, the problem, the danger of that is that many people take that sense of purpose and then terrorize these grieving families, right? The guy Posner I was talking about has had to move a dozen times. He's in hiding. He, he collects his mail through post office boxes. Like, what are we talking about here? So I think it's important not to marginalize Alex Jones, you know, who's at his peak had like a million and a half views uh, a day on across his various platforms and accounts, but also recognize um, the role that that big tech, which absolutely has a financial incentive for this kind of outrage, because if you're down a rabbit hole, you are refreshing pages, you are clicking, right? you are you are in it, you are addicted. You can't stop. Um, and that's how they make their money. um and then the you know the our lack of any kind of media regulation or accountability for for this damaging uh, activity,
2: David, what's your theory for why? we have such a, uh, you know, prominent, like looming figure here instead of someone who should be in his basement with nobody listening to him.
0: Well, it's, it, it is really the, the, the way in which the internet allows people to, to gather, uh, to gather and that you can, that, it, that a figure like Alex Jones a generation ago might have a hundred subscribers to his, to his newsletter, to his fringe newspaper, but that when a platform and, it, and he was enabled by the big platforms, he's off the big platforms now. But at the beginning, he was able to to gather his tribe around him on the big platforms. When you can collect all those people together, you are no longer marginal when you you're it's not that other people that people weren't susceptible to these beliefs a generation ago. It's not that people didn't hold these beliefs a generation ago it's not that they didn't have these suspicions of big institutions a generation ago it's not that people weren't conspiracy minded a generation ago it's that that when the platforms can allow all these people to get together those people are monetizable and they are motivatable in groups to do awful things to other people and so it really is a function of 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 what the internet and and specifically what the big platforms allowed early on,
2: but I think your point about how the platforms um allowed Jones's prominence and then stepped in too late is a really big dilemma for the platforms because how do you know who the nascent Alex Jones is as opposed to like, well, we're just allowing a lot of speech and a lot of dissent, and we need skeptics and people asking questions like. Deciding where that line is is there is a genuinely tricky problem for um, any kind of free speech platform and for democratic communications. It just seems pretty clear right now that we are in a situation in which lies and misinformation are um, warping our democracy and making it very hard to have. <laughs> Um, you know, kind of shared consensus around facts and Jones is very much a part of it. I mean, there's, it's no accident that he was also involved in planning. It appears the January 6th um, riots and was like caught up in all of that. So just just difficult questions, but I don't find this defamation suit to be a difficult question. I think it's really important that these families are protecting um, their reputations and trying to hit back here.
1: You know, it, Emily, it it raises for me the mini trend. I wouldn't say, you know, I can be really hopeful about it. But as I think about a couple of different places where um, big corporations are being held accountable for the real life harms, um, one in the disinformation space. Right. When we looked at all the right wing media that peddled the lies about the election and we've got this like Titan clash with a huge Uh, election uh, technology and voting machines company Dominion throwing billion and a half dollar lawsuits at, you know, Fox and the Murdochs specifically, um, OAN and Newsmax, basically saying, you know, you, you defamed us and you amplified these false claims and it cost us. And it's really, for me, as someone who, you know, has been very worried about the impact of these media outlets on our democracy, on, you know, our multiracial democracy, on the ability to create some sense that we're all in it together, to have the corporation with the deep enough pockets actually be the ones to say, you know what, we're going to make hold you to task for this and the lawsuits are going forward um, is really huge. Um, And I think that it's one of the things that seems like there has been sort of a crescendo of alarm about disinformation across the globe. And I think we're going to see more of these kinds of lawsuits by the people who, and corporations that actually have the money to take them, right? I I keep thinking about the Sandy Hook families and how this has drained their wealth and their time and everything. And so I'd rather see a huge corporation have to do this um, than, than grieving families.
0: Welcome back to the GabFest, Annie Lowry of The Atlantic. Annie wrote the article that was most passed around the internet this week, at least my corner of the internet, American motherhood. My pregnancies could have killed me, but at least I chose them. Uh, It is a stunning and grueling article. Whatever horror you have imagined for yourself, I can assure you that it is not as bad as Annie's description of just one miserable aspect of her pregnancies. So Annie, can you start by telling us what happened in your pregnancies and why you wanted to write about them now.
3: My pregnancies were physically debilitating. Uh, And it was mysterious at the time until about midway through the second pregnancy why that was going on. And it turns out that I have a rare degenerative liver condition that does not play well with pregnancy. So something about 100,000 or 150,000 Americans have this condition, and it's almost always diagnosed in people who are 40, 50, 60, so somewhat older than most people when they're having kids. Um, but the hormone load of pregnancy combined with this, um, creates these kind of debilitating system, symptoms. So this itching that they cannot do anything for. So I itched basically the entire time I was pregnant, both times all over my body, like I had poison ivy and they just can't do anything for it. Um, and then I had just a lot of other complications, some of which it turned out that I actually, um, have a second, uh, permanent condition, which is that I have type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes. I was diagnosed as an adult shortly after my second pregnancy. They realized that I had that. But, you know, I had really bad preeclampsia. I had a placental abruption, which is a really, really dangerous complication of preeclampsia. I had really, really traumatic deliveries, which I think is, you know, in the first case, um, my son was born preterm. In the second case, it was just kind of happenstance that it was an unfortunate delivery. And, you know, the reason I wanted to write the article was that, you know, only for a brief period of time were these um conditions obviously life-threatening, but they were absolutely threatening to my health the entire time. And I'm not sure that I would qualify for a termination for medical reasons in the states that are now really aggressively banning abortion. But, you know, I've also been told not to be pregnant again. And so, you know, it's just my one story, but there are thousands, you know, three and a half million people a year give birth in this country. There's going to be many, 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 many more stories like this where it's not obvious that somebody's life is in danger, but it is.
1: Annie, um, I really want to thank you for the article. It was devastating and funny and so immediate. Um, I don't think you have to have had been pregnant as I have or given birth as I have to feel the sort of terror. Um, there's one line that I want to read because I want to make sure that people reading listening to this who haven't read the piece yet um, don't think like, oh, like itching. That doesn't sound so bad. Um, but that's based on this underlying chronic disease that's rather rare, but your traumatic deliveries, like that's not rare, right? And I'm speaking as a Black woman, right? Where, you know, we have, you know, incredible stories and statistics of trauma and lack of care in our maternal health. Um, So I just want to read a couple lines. A request from the doctor for more anesthesia, a warning that it would take a few minutes to kick in. Searing pain, leading me to scream at the doctor to stop. The doctor with the forceps not stopping. Nurses pinning my legs down in the stirrups. The sense of being eviscerated. The room going technicolor. I did not know I could feel so much pain. Like, my heart is racing right now, right? I mean, it's just, this is not to say that we won't continue to get pregnant and have children and do these sacrifices, but it is to say that the fact that this radical minority on the Supreme Court did not take any curiosity into what it really is to be pregnant and to give birth um, means that we just were rendered invisible. And I think that that is a a really powerful theme in your piece, which is just that you know the balancing was always supposed to be between the mother and the life and the mother of the fetus, as if the mother is not doing that balancing every single day with every waking breath. But this court got it so phenomenally wrong, and and people will die because of it. And I wonder what the reaction has been to the piece in the you know less than a week. I think that it's been out.
3: To pick on a, a up on an, a really important point there, you know, the court has basically asked all of these questions and left them unanswered. If you've experienced birth trauma, should you be forced to continue another pregnancy when you don't want to be pregnant? If you have mental health conditions, if you are experiencing suicidal ideation, should you should you have to continue your pregnancy? These are the kinds of questions that are going to come up again and again. And I do, you know, I, I was a college-educated white woman with a husband who argues for a living when I was undergoing this entire process. And so I thought often about, you know, if I didn't have the same confidence in the medical system, if I didn't have the same set of privileges, is that I had, would this have gone differently for me? You know, would my older son be alive? Would I still be here? And I think that that's, you know, especially um, a question that might be on the minds of black women when one in 1,800 dies having a a child in this country. And I think it's such an important point. Um, You know, one question I also have is for this, you know, pocket of terminations for medical reasons that's going to happen in states where abortion is banned, who's going to get those? How sick do they have to be? Are those going to be quote unquote like fairly distributed? Of course they're not. And, you know, um, uh, I'm very interested to see the disparate impact on racial terms. And so, you know, the, the, the response to the piece has been amazing and it's in part come from people who've shared their, miserable, terrifying experiences giving birth. Um, since, you know, complications, most, many people give birth safely and have safe pregnancies. And, you know, a lot of people even, I can't understand this, but they enjoy the process and that's great. But it's really common to have even very serious, um, and in some cases, life threatening complications. And so, you know, it's been interesting seeing so many people be like, you know, this happened to me and this was horrible. And I can't imagine having another kid or being forced to and then there's been uh, you know the the i'm sure as as you both would expect you know like a fair number of people being like well you're you're killing babies and um how could you argue for that and uh there's been a lot of you know like biblically women are meant to suffer um, which I don't quite know what to do with. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to think about that. And, you know, it's, um, it's something that there's been so many of these stories over the years and doctors have said this over and over and over again. Abortion is healthcare. And now we're really finding that out in an even more acute way than was already true. Um, when, when you could terminate for medical reasons up to the point of viability, thanks to Roe and Casey.
0: Any one last question I want to take us to a different piece of yours that was also really great that I was reading. Can you talk about the turnaway study, what that is, and why it is so important in this moment?
3: The turnaway study is amazing and um it was conducted over a long period of time by a set of researchers who essentially recruited pregnant people in the waiting rooms of uh, abortion providers, so uh, mostly clinics in states across the country. And um, some of those folks uh, arrived at the clinic in time to meet their state's you know, gestational limit um, and received a termination, and some wanted a termination and didn't make it in time. And so what that allowed uh, these researchers, this was run through UCSF, to do was to compare people who got an abortion versus people who wanted abortion and didn't get one. And so it was almost like a like a like a natural, like randomized study so that you could compare these two populations that were unbelievably similar and see what effect you could isolate the effect that the abortion had on on the person's life. And what they found was that, you know, as expected, um, carrying to term was much more dangerous than having a wanted termination. Um, So nobody died in the sample of people who received um, an abortion. Two women died uh, from complications of pregnancy uh, who wanted an abortion and didn't get one and had to carry to term. And then uh, there were all of these other effects, mental health effects, uh, financial effects, effects on, you know, most people who have an abortion already have a child or children, and um, the children of people who got the abortion when they wanted one um met more milestones and were doing better than the kids of people who wanted an abortion and didn't have one. Um, there's all sorts of heartbreaking details in there about um what happens to people who wanted an abortion and ended up giving up a, a child for adoption, um, which was just brutalizing to the people who did it and very upsetting to them. And it you know, one of the great takeaways um I thought from this study was that a lot of you know, folks' fears about caring to term when they don't want to were, we're very much born out in it. Um, it really affects your life. It affects your health. It affects your body. It affects your other kids. It affects um, your romantic relationships. Um, you know, if you got your wanted termination, you were much likelier to be in a happy romantic relationship later on, a stable romantic relationship. You were less likely to be with a partner who was abusing you. And um, I think it's the best study that we have that shows the wide-ranging effects that abortion access has on the lives of women and and other people who who bear children.
0: Annie Lowry wrote American Motherhood for the Atlantic this week. Check it out. Thanks, Annie. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, When you, Emily, are sitting surrounded by black flies and mosquitoes uh, on some unscreened-in porch in in rural New England, what are you going to be chattering to your beloveds about?
2: So I am part of launching this week a new journalism training project. It's called the Law and Justice Journalism Project. And the idea is to bring together veteran journalists and producers and editors and people experts on the criminal legal system to improve reporting on issues related to justice and public safety. And this is obviously a longstanding interest of mine and this increasingly pressing issue about um, how uh, issues of crime and justice um, are disseminated by the media and what effect they have on the electorate and how to do it well without fear mongering this is really hard stuff to cover and so this project um, has two components one is a bunch of panels that's open to anyone who wants to come Um, so we're hoping reporters you know anybody will find some of them helpful and they'll be like real skills building kind of um, panels and the second part is a mentorship program early career journalists especially local journalists in both print and broadcast with veteran reporters and these veteran reporters and um, editors will help the people they're paired with think through the challenges they're confronting all through the course of the year so we have funding for this for the up-and-coming journalists who participate and we're hoping that you'll apply um, so big shout out um, to people who are interested in these issues and improving and thinking through their reporting on them. Um, It's a pretty simple application process, and you can find it at the website for Law and Justice Journalism Project, or you can um, follow this project at LJJ
1: Project on Twitter. That's so cool, Emily. I love that.
0: Heather, what's your chatter?
1: I'm going to take us from highbrow to very lowbrow. So I've been um, just... Slammed lately. I'm teaching at CUNY. I'm, you know, promoting the book and giving speeches, and then I've been on the road almost every week for the past six months, um, recording the podcast that we're going to talk about later. The sum of us going all around the country. I'm like flying too much. My back. I have a pinched nerve. It's just been a mess. And I found an escape, and it has been a really beautiful thing. I had stopped reading fiction because I was reading so much nonfiction, so much news. I was researching the book and everything. And I just, you know, it was kind of not what I did. Instead, I would, you know, watch TV with my husband or something like that. But I rediscovered the love of, like, basically the kind of cotton candy that I wanted in TV in what is called a book. And it's really interesting. And this is this is actually what I would talk about at a cocktail party, because I think it's important to um, remind people that I think people you know, at
0: cocktail parties have heard a book. It'd be like, Have you heard about a books?
1: <laughs> no, but I'm going to tell you about this book that Brooklyn. I'm sure cocktail parties um, are not okay. talking about right now. It is a fantasy, like double trilogy um, called A Court of Thorns and Roses. And it's by this, like, 20-year-old. I think she's like 35, but she started writing when she was like 29. Um, Sarah Moss, it's like a huge bestseller, but you know, only in a world in which you're reading, you know, romantic fantasy novels. And I have found myself like staying up till two in the morning reading. And I just want to put a shout-out into the world for reading. Things that are really transporting and that totally change your mood and, like, your body and your just feeling of the world. Um, because there's something about TV that, I don't know, when it, 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 like, it's decision overload, right? Like, oh, my God, you know, I make enough decisions in the day. I don't want to sit down and be like, what, what do I need to watch across all these different platforms? And then there's just something so transporting about reading a book that is just for fun, it's not educating you. It may be making you dumber, but it feels really, really good.
0: That segues perfectly into my chatter, which is a, a very similar. I have also had that transporting experience with a particular book uh, that I'm going to recommend called Piranesi by Susanna Clark, who wrote the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell* book. And Piranesi creates, it's a very short book, it creates a fantasy universe that is so memorable and beautiful and weird and uh I'm not going to say much about it because to say much about it would be to kind of give away the pleasure that you would feel but just know that that um it will bring you into a world that is so surprising in a way of thinking that's so surprising and and I feel like Susanna Clark must be the most interesting person there is her mind I would like to live in it because the permeable border in her mind between what is real and what is magical it is. It's for for me. That's a that's a hard border. That is a that's a gigantic two hundred mile high wall. But for her, it is the. It's a cloud. She is moving back and forth between the magical and the real in this way that is amazing and beautiful. Beautiful. So that book. But I also want to just mention one other book which I have also been reading this summer called Testament of Youth, which is a a World War One memoir by a woman named Vera Britton who was a nurse in World War One, a young nurse, and it's about her experience as a nurse and her disillusionment. But what was stunning about this book is here's this woman. She's an educated young woman of the early 20th century. And she is, she has a boyfriend. She has a a man. She is attached to later fiance, uh, a world war one soldier. And they, she has all his, their correspondence in the book and it really puts to shame us cuz they all they do is they they cite poetry they send poetry back and forth to each other they have a perfect quote for any moment you know they're always citing this thing from cicero this thing from john donne this from you know this the new poet they've all been reading and i just the, the level of sophistication and education and 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 intense focus on on literature and beauty is uh profound. And I definitely was not like that as a 19 year old. So I don't know what's happened to what's happened to all of us. Listeners, you also have cocktail chatters, uh probably, I hope, fantasy novels. Please keep them coming to us. Tweet them to us at, at Slate Gabfest or email them to us at Gabfest at Slate.com. And today's listener chatter comes to us from Mohammed El Sheikh.
1: My chatter this week is about an article in The Atlantic titled, Everyone Loses on Jeopardy Eventually, by a Pittsburgh-based writer and recent
0: Jeopardy contestant, Adriana Ramirez. Mrs. Ramirez talks about her love of trivia and her experience
1: making it onto the ultimate trivia show, Jeopardy, where she eventually ends up losing and losing badly to Ryan Long, the rideshare driver from Philadelphia. After agonizing about attending a watch party in a local bar in Pittsburgh, organized by her husband, she ends up reflecting on the amazing accomplishment of just getting on the show. In 2021, 99.6% of potential contestants didn't make it on the show. By comparison, Harvard rejected about 96.6% of applicants that same year. As a society, we put so much stock and value on winning that we sometimes fail to realize that even when we lose, we actually win.
0: That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. For Heather McGee, yay, Heather, and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How, how have you been? Heather, you wrote a great book that we talked about on the Fest, uh some months ago, a year ago, The Sum of Us, about how racism hurts everyone, even the racists, more than we realize. You're now doing a podcast inspired by the book, same title, The Sum of Us. It is out. Listen to it. Subscribe to it. And you have spent, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you've spent a ton of time traveling around the U.S., apparently the last person finding hope in our highways and byways. So talk to us about the premise of The Some of Us, the podcast.
1: The Some of Us, the book, was about my journey across the country to try to answer the question, why is it that we can't seem to have nice things? Not like hovercraft backpacks, but like, Universal child care and healthcare and paid family leave and great infrastructure and all of that. And what I found, as you said, is that racism in our politics and our policymaking has, you know, broken our capacity for collective action and big problem solving together. And I ended the book on a hopeful note, uh, saying that you know because of that. If we can roll up our sleeves and come together and link arms across race in this multiracial America, we can actually still accomplish great things. And I I called that idea of these gains that can be unlocked through multiracial coalitions, solidarity dividends. And as I was promoting the book, that was like the number one focus for audiences. People... You know, they remembered the drain pool metaphor of how racism cost us public goods. But they were like, how can we get more of those solidarity dividends? Like, how can you have hope? Like, where's the answer? Like, let's go forward. And frankly, like many people, the actual events that happened after I released my book in January 2021, you know, started to get me down. I was like, I don't know. You know, maybe it's not going to work, you know, like maybe, maybe we can't come together across race when we're like banning books and defunding libraries for having, you know, a graphic novel that mentions the word gay and all of this stuff. And so I hit the road again and it was amazing. I brought the idea to higher ground, which is the Obama's production company. And, probably not surprisingly on this podcast, it's like, I'm going to go on a journey in search of hope and solidarity and overlooked corners of the country. You know, that whole team was like, yeah, yeah, I think that fits. I think we could do that. (laughs) And so we did. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been challenging. I've had a lot of my sort of Assumptions challenged, but we managed to find um, nine episodes, each coming out uh, once a week on Wednesdays, that are each in a different place in the country. And actually, I realized after we kind of wrapped that most of them in red and purple places, of people coming together, really unlikely connections, organizing and winning things like clean water and higher wages and righting historical wrongs. Like, it's a very sort of I think it's a podcast that um, gives you a shot of hope. It is not an interview podcast. I somehow didn't go for the easy thing of sitting and asking people questions. I decided to, like, you know, trudge around the country and, and put together basically eight little documentaries. Um, and it's, it, it reminds us that, you know, when the protest signs have been put away, um, the consciousness shift that happens from moments of mass movement, um, particularly I'm talking about the, the racial justice uprisings of 2020, um, they don't disappear, right? You don't go back to sleep. You, you, you figure out how to get something done in your neighborhood. And, and those cross-racial relationships are, are, are almost easier because there's more self-awareness. You're kind of on the same page, at least. Um, and that's really what we discovered.
2: Heather, one of your episodes is about Memphis, and uh, we share an interest in Memphis. It was an important part of the book I wrote in 2019, and um, one of the main characters in my book is Amy Wyrick, who's the kind of old-fashioned, um, hard-charging prosecutor in Memphis, has a history um, herself and in her office of failing to disclose evidence at trials, and um, and she is up for a re-election today, in fact, for the first time in eight years, because there's an eight-year term for district attorney in um, Memphis and Shelby County. So it's Memphis plus the suburbs. So I'm watching that race with a lot of interest. And I know you told a different story about Memphis, and I would love to hear more about it.
1: I went to Memphis to hear about a movement that had been sparked that had brought together this very segregated city. Like, there is white Memphis and there is Black Memphis. Um, You know, there are neighborhoods that are 99% white and 99% Black. Um, And it is a story uh, of a pipeline that was slated to go through Surprise, surprise, the black part of Memphis. And the company used and tried to use eminent domain to seize the land and force homeowners to sell uh, to make way for this pipeline. And, you know, that story of environmental injustice, of black communities being targeted with the siting of toxins and dangerous, you know, parts of our industry is all over the country. you know, black people are twice as likely to live near toxins as white people in the country. Um, but in this instance, a couple of things happened. One, one of the people who was on contract with this big pipeline company accidentally said the quiet part out loud, said, Well, we chose this area, Boxtown, because it was the path of least resistance. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, it's like one of those things about racism, like when it's just the air you breathe, you have to fight so much to say that it's really happening. And then when someone just says it, it really sparked, I think, coming on the heels of the summer of 2020, this sense of like, oh, this is wrong, right? But I don't know that that would have been enough in this city. Um, but the pipeline was also threatening the which is this huge underground natural treasure that gives Memphis some of the sweetest and cleanest water in the world. And so you had the like white environmentalists and the like white part of Memphis being like, don't mess with our water, and recognizing that the immediate threat was to the Black part of Memphis, and this amazing coalition came together, Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. And There are just some indelible characters in this episode of this podcast. There's a quote that I'm not going to give away that an elderly Black woman says that one of my friends said, I think I'm going to get that as a tattoo. And I was like, I think, (laughs) I I don't blame you. If I were a tattoo person, I might as well. Like, it's just, it's it's really sweet. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I love this Memphis episode. It's the... The first episode of the podcast is sort of like a preface. It's me sort of explaining my journey. But episode two is the is the Memphis episode, and it's great.
0: So all of these stories are stories of uh, cross-racial activity, right, of people coming together across races, yes?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep.
0: Are those, I mean, I know it's hard to put a figure on it, but do you think that is a that is something that is more common or less common now than than a generation or two generations ago
1: you know one of the things i think is really important as we tell the history of progress in this country is that we don't erase the fact that you know, in civil rights, white people were dying and making sacrifices and fighting. That we don't forget that in the women's movement, there were well-placed men who were there to pull the ladder. Um, because with any kind of minority rights in this country, we're just kind of never going to be enough, right? We're never going to have enough people, enough power to do it on our own. And so I do think that there's a sort of hidden history of the race traders of the class traders of the gender traders of people who just side with the sided with the oppressed because for various reasons right whom we don't talk about um i think enough particularly in this moment when i think a lot of our again sort of social media filter bubble infused and enabled talk about race can seem kind of like all we need is enough power in this community to to do it, right, and uh, you know you do kind of slide into an us versus them um, that I think is really made a lot easier online than it is in real life and I think the lesson that I learned of this journey of really digging into what made these coalitions work is that it's not easy is that there are mistakes um, that it does take a lot of grace from everyone involved, and frankly particularly the people of color who you know have to oftentimes, like, be in the role of educating, be in the role of being patient, be in the role of fighting for their place in leadership. Um, but at the same time, I don't really know that we can look at any successful movement that hasn't been a coalition in some way across the different constituencies that were um, implicated in it.
0: Heather, can we go back to your book, well, a little bit? So I've spent the last year talking about swimming pools i mean i mean i think that i think the the metaphor that in the sum of us is really one of the most powerful metaphors i've ever heard from any book on any subject ever um, but the the thing that also keeps pulling me back is that it is also clear that so many people in this country are getting enormous psychic satisfaction from Emptying the swimming pool from racism from, and from racial sol- and from racial solidarity with mostly it's white people finding racial solidarity with white people around issues regarding their sense that white people are in, endangered. Um, how, have you had any change or movement in your thinking about how we think about the economic costs, which the enormous economic costs that we bear when we are, allow racism to, to dominate? um versus this the way that people are clearly getting some kind of psychic satisfaction from from making life unpleasant for other people.
1: So you're talking about swimming pools, which is the central metaphor at, in the heart of the sum of us the book. The idea that this country, all over the country, people were willing to drain these grand resort style public swimming pools that were segregated instead of complying with court orders to desegregate them. So communities literally drained out the water of their pools, buried them, destroyed a public good rather than share it across lines of race. The economic costs are so evident, right? They're in the policies that we don't adopt because of our knee-jerk anti-government skepticism. Um, they're They're in the collective action we don't take to mitigate the costs of climate change. They're in the wealth gap and the economic gaps that have cost $16 trillion over the last 20 years. And that's just the Black-white economic divide. And, and, and so the costs are so evident to me, at least. You know, and that's my background as an economic policy. But you know, W.B. Du Bois wrote in Black Reconstruction in America about the wages of whiteness. Uh, saying that there's a psychological wage that the elite in the South paid to white workers that was instead of a material wage, right? White workers in the South, workers in the South are some of the poorest workers, you know, in uh, of our peer economies. Period, and. That's because basically it was they were feeding white workers Jim Crow as as Dr. King said instead of you know feeding them things that would actually put food on their plate and I think that false consciousness that says I measure my sense of worth relative to other people instead of you know my absolute freedom and rights and quality of life uh, and so it's more important for me to make sure somebody else is still under me than it is for me to have more, particularly if that would require that person to be, you know, lifted up, linked-armed, you know, and fight the powers that be. Um, it's a really old story, and it's one that I think, you know, every time, this is a little bit of a digression, but I've been really f- aware of it lately. When we talk about disinformation, and, um, you know, on the, on the show today, we talked about Alex Jones and conspiracy theories. And I'm like, what is a bigger conspiracy theory than racism, than the belief that some people are better than others, that some people are not even human, right? Like, we were born with that, with so much misinformation and disinformation in this society, Um, and it... Was, you know, we, we believed absurdities and we committed ab- atrocities. And so there's something in there for me about like our susceptibility to mass delusion. And I think this sort of zero sum relative status wages of whiteness thing is part of that mass delusion um, that it is hard to argue with. But the only way. I've seen, and Du Bois said this as well. I mean, you could just, yeah, listen to him, not me. But, you know, Du Bois said this as well. (laughs) He doesn't have a podcast. He doesn't have a podcast. He would. It would be a great one. (laughs) Oh, my God.
2: I want that podcast.
1: (laughs) All right. My new podcast is not going to be me schlepping my ass across the country. It's going to be me sitting in a nice chair and reading Du Bois. (laughs) That's going to be my (laughs) new podcast. I think you
2: should interview him. I feel like there's a seance to be had here. (laughs)
1: Um, but du he du Bois, would totally
2: want to talk to you.
1: Oh, I mean, that's very, that's, that's, that's high praise. I mean, you're that's like the perfect
2: interlocutor. Okay, <laughs> let's make this happen.
1: Um, du Bois also said that, you know, he had never seen, I'm paraphrasing here, he had never seen a more powerful um, tool against race prejudice as organized labor. Right. Because it really is. The episode that's coming out next week of the Some of Us podcast is um, goes into it's the one total overlap of characters from the book with the podcast. The rest are are new stories. But I really wanted to go back to Kansas City and talk to Bridget and Terrence, this white and black fast food worker who, you know, Bridget really changed her consciousness from thinking like, you know, it's us versus them. Immigrants are taking our jobs to, as she said to me, knowing that, um for us to come up, they've got to come up, too, because as long as we're divided, we're conquered, right? She really evolved her racial consciousness around issues of class um, through organizing, through race-conscious organizing, where the, you know, the, literally the placards, the signs said, you know, we won't fight each other, defeat racism, you know, win better jobs. Um, so that's the answer.